You're about to hear a sermon that was preached for the people of Sacred City Church in Moline, Illinois. Sacred City Moline is a gospel-centered missional church that aims to make disciples plant churches and renew the cities. If you want to hear more about Sacred City Church or become part of what we're doing here, we encourage you to visit us at scmoline.com. Now, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy this sermon. Hear the word of the Lord from Psalm 128. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Well, let's look at how this psalm begins. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. Now, right off the bat, the the psalmist wants his readers to know that there is hope today. Blessed can be translated almost happy, or it can be translated truly happy, or you can even translate it content. Blessed or blessed is a word that says that one is truly happy and fulfilled. And see, the book of Psalms is ordered in such a way that we would that we would, living in a broken world, and oh yes, the Psalms are filled with with statements of songs that are filled with the laments, that are filled with the realities of the world that we we are living in, the brokenness that is around us, whether it be within our bodies, within our families, within our cities. Yes, the Psalms are not ignoring these things, but rather very bold in their expression of it. But the Psalms have never had the intent that we'd be left there. But rather it is, it is made in such a way that there are, that there it is ordered in such a way that there's a culmination in hope. That one can find true happiness and fulfillment, or in other words, to be blessed. See, the, the Psalms are made up of five books in which the fifth book assures God's people of the consummation of his kingdom. And so we find Psalm 128 in this fifth book of the Psalms. But even more significantly, we find ourselves in a particular series of 15 Psalms, Psalms 120 through 134, which are called the Psalms or Songs of Ascent. These are Psalms which could be sung at any time, but were particularly sung as God's people were ascending up to Jerusalem for the three annual feasts. Thus, song, psalms or song of ascent. And so, as I said in our pastoral welcome, they were going up knowing two things. They know that there were going to be sacrifices at these three festivals. One sacrifice, or some of the sacrifices, are going to be that of thanksgiving. Thanksgiving that they were God's people. But they also were going up looking to Jerusalem, knowing that they also need to have a sacrifice or sacrifices that was going to deal with the fact that while they were God's people, they were not living like God's people as they should. Both kinds of sacrifices were sacrifices of grace. Oh, I'm, I'm the person of God, I'm in the family of God, but also knowing that I need grace. A sacrifice that would deal with my sins. And so they were ascending up to looking, placing their hope on Jerusalem, placing their hope ultimately on that temple of where God dwells. And so this is where we find our psalm, Psalm 128. Singing singing psalms uh, that were particular for the time. So it's like Christmas carols. Uh, You can sing them at any time, but the truth of their content, you know, of course, never changes. But they are particularly poignant when you are a people celebrating together. And so these songs become particularly significant as God's people. As God's people, they believe that these psalms were put together as God's people were coming back from exile. 
knowing that this is an ascent psalm is particularly helpful for us today, who increasingly feel like we don't belong. See, they didn't feel like they belonged either, particularly after the exile. Psalm 120, which is the first ascent psalm, look at verses 5 and 7. They're singing this. They're saying, Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech and I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I'm for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Now, the psalmist compares his present circumstances to living in a foreign land. See, while both the place names can be located on a map, and clearly alluding to a warring kind of people or a people groups, the place names, Meshech or Kedar, are functioning metaphorically for hostile peoples. Hostile peoples in general. See, we live in a culture that is at war. War with anything, any generally held truth or principle. Critical theory of which we have heard in the form of critical race theory. Critical theory is a social theory oriented toward critiquing and changing society as a whole. And it differs from kind of the, the traditional theory, the, uh, which focuses only on understanding or explaining society. No, critical theories aim to dig beneath the surface of social life, get at assumptions, and then destroy those assumptions. Critical theorists are at war with all authority, and primarily at the authority of God. So that the psalmist in Psalm 120 says, you saw it there in verse 7, they are for war. And then look there again in Psalm 120 at the beginning of verse 6. Look what he says there. He says, too long have I made my dwelling among them, or too long have I lived. The phrase carries it with it a note of exasperation in that the psalmist is confessing his circumstances as becoming more than he can bear. And he seeks what he does not have. He seeks shalom. He seeks there, look there again, peace. I just want peace. <laughs> That's just what I want. Shalom has a range of meaning depending upon the context, but within the Psalms, it can be understood as this. So let me define it for you, shalom. Shalom is the hopefulness and wholeness of life. When one's life is lived with with the grain of how the creator has created the world. Shalom is the hopefulness and wholeness of life when one's life is lived with the grain of how the creator has created the world. So the intent of the songs of ascent is to put back a song into our hearts the hearts of God's people because they were literally traveling up to the city of God, Jerusalem. Their joy was restored in finding hope in the God who was and is and will be there. Their hope was in God. So back to our psalm now, Psalm 128. Look at who is happy. Look at who is happy. It is everyone who fears the Lord. And so again, this is one of the aims of working through, the, uh, through our origins. We have, we have been faced, as we've been walking through our origins, we have been faced with the fact that there is a creator who created the entire universe of which the earth itself is a small dot on the map of that universe. And if the earth is a small dot, how much smaller we ought to feel. But not only is he the creator, we also have discovered that he is the sustainer, so that all of life is a moment, is moment by moment dependent upon him. And thus again, it is enchanted. 
But not only did we discover that he's our creator and sustainer, but that he, he is Lord. The, the Lord that we describe, that we have here, blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, which means two things. First, our English version translates Lord. The Hebrew word recognizes that he is the one to whom we are accountable. And so we learned from this origin series that, the, that as sovereign, he has given us responsibility as his regents to rule over this world in such a way as to glorify his name. That in our subduing, we were to manage the world in such a way that it would flourish and be fruitful and reflective of the sovereign, the Lord. And we learned that in the beginning, he had given us quite a bit of latitude and how that was to be accomplished. Matter of fact, the Garden of Eden, the center of the beginning of our work that was to flow out into the rest of the untamed wild world was full of yeses. And really, there was just one no. So in this word, Lord, we are accountable to him. And secondly, in this word, Lord, we find that he is a God who wants to be in a relationship, in a way with this part of creation than any other part of creation. In, at the pinnacle of his creation, humanity, he wanted to be in relationship uh, with us. See, the Hebrew word Yahweh, of which we translate in our English version with capital letters L-O-R-D, is his covenant name. It is a name that expresses that God has chosen a particular people to be his people, a people that he would enter into a promised relationship with, a people that he promised to lead and to protect, a people that would call him their Lord and Savior. And so astounding was this God to his people that Moses finally had to ask, who are you? He, he asked that question. He asked that question after God had already re brought them out of, out of Egypt, out of slavery. And he brought them through into the wilderness and he had provided for them in the wilderness. He had given them, uh, he was giving them his word, his 10 commandments, if we will, the culmination of all that it means to live in grain with the universe that he has given. And while Moses away was getting that, what happened? But we did what we always seem to do and that is we rebelled. And so they worshiped this golden calf. And at that moment when it seemed like there was no, there was going to be no hope for God's people. Rather than no hope for God's people, Moses stepped in and interceded. It's kind of pointing towards a, a interceder. He stepped in and interceded on behalf of his people. And as a result, then God was gracious and forgiving. And Moses says, who are you that you would do this? Exodus 33, 18, Moses said, please show me your glory. I mean, what do you like? That this is the God that is calling us his own people. Please show me your glory. And he said, the Lord said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh. So this is what happened, Exodus 34, starting at verse 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands of generations. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So he noticed there that he doesn't just look, overlook transgressions and sin. There are consequences to sin. And notice for the sake of our psalm, Psalm 128, where is the effect? The effect is in the home. Fathers on the children and children's children. But look how Moses responds to learning about that name that he's merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Verse 8, Psalm 30, I mean, Exodus 34, Psalm 8. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people. 
We're a stiff-necked people. He knew what they were made of. He knew what he was made of. And pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. And Yahweh said, Behold, I'm making a covenant. Before all your people, I will do marvels, such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among you who, of all the people among you, you are, shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. This is the God of whom we deal with. The aim of the origin series is to stare into the face of the reality that there is a creator, a sustainer, a Lord of whom we must give account, but also a savior who's merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness who calls us his own. So that is, we considered in our origin series that most anxious, anxious moments in the entire life of Adam and Eve where, where they heard the sound of the Lord, Yahweh, God, walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid themselves because rather than exploring all of the yeses of the garden, they consumed the one no into their being, and they knew that their creator, sustainer, Lord, had said, for in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. So in this sense, he is also judge. But rather than giving them what they deserved... He gave them good news. They, the man and the woman, he said, would be integral in destroying the works of the dragon. And that from the woman, the one who was deceived, through her, the dragon slayer would come. <laughs> and then he sacrificed an animal to cover their shame pointing to the one who would do so for all of humanity. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So he is the creator, the sustainer, the Lord who was also their Savior. So it is not surprising that in another psalm of ascent, Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4, we read this, If you, O Yahweh, should mark iniquities, Oh, Lord, who could stand? To which the answer is, what? No one. But with you, there is forgiveness. Why? What's the result? That you may be feared. We should be destroyed. We should be crushed. And he says, I forgive that you may be feared. So back to our psalm, blessed is everyone who fears Yahweh. That is, most happy is everyone who acknowledges him as creator, sustainer, Lord, judge, and savior. And when you fear the Lord, what is going to happen? We'll look there, second part of verse one. You walk in his ways. That is, those who fear the Lord... They have a life that's oriented toward God and God's purposes in the world. They will be blessed. That is, truly happy and fulfilled. And that blessedness has a location. It is the Christian home. So here is my focal point for the day. 
God has ordained the Christian home to be the place of hopefulness and wholeness to not only your family, but to our world. Again, God has ordained the Christian home to be the place of hopefulness and wholeness to not only your family, but to our world. So let's first look at how it is a place of hopefulness and wholeness to your family. That is seen in verses 2 and two through 4. Three blessings we immediately see for those who fear Yahweh. The first is found in verse 2. You shall eat of the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well, well with you. So the first blessing within the home is food. Yay! <laughs> That is the fruit of the labor of your hands. See, the psalmist is acknowledging the goodness of the work of work and what it produces. Again, as we think through the series on origins, we were reminded in chapter, chapter one of the goodness of work. That work was part of creation and part of the call on humanity to take that wildness and the untamed resources of the world and to be, be creators of our own technology in such a way that the character of God would be seen in what we create and we create it for the goodness of humanity and that mandate is still on us your work is good now the psalm is intention to Psalm 127, just one psalm before, at verse 2, in that the poet cautioned people against rising early and staying up late in order to toil for food. It says, it says verse 2, it is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sheep, uh, sleep, sorry, sleep. <laughs> See, see, there's a caution here to work too hard with the belief that somehow I can secure my own future apart from God. No, but when one recognizes the proper order of life and acts in accordance with it in a living relationship to the giver of life and act in accordance with his ways, then you get food. You shall eat the fruits of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. See, the Proverbs are filled with one-liners, if you will, of how to work rightly. I didn't put these up on the screen. I'm just going to read them through for you, just a few. Proverbs 10.4, a slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Proverbs 11.1, a false balance is an abomination to the Lord, to Yahweh, but a just weight is his delight. Proverbs 12, 11, whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lack sense. And on and on we could go. So we go to the New Testament and we learn from 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, that if we do not provide for our own household, it is a denial of the faith. Paul says this supposed Christian is worse than an unbeliever, so there are gospel implications if we do not work. So Paul tells the thief in Ephesians 4, 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands, so that he may have something to share with those in need. Or Paul tells the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 4, 11, aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So whether you are single or you are married, one of the blessings of fearing the Lord within your home is that of food. So that when you live in line with how God has created the universe and walk in his ways regarding work, you will be content. You will be blessed. Your Christian home is a place of hopefulness and wholeness to your family. If you're single, you have the resources to be hospitable to others, those in need, your friends, your extended family. If you are married, you have that to one another. If you have children, to your children, to their children and beyond, your Christian home is a place of hopefulness and wholeness. The second blessing is found in verse 3, fruitfulness. Fruitfulness. 
your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Now the assumption here is that the home consists of a married couple. But what we're gonna see is that that is true whether you are single or whether you are married. We're gonna see the principles are the same whether you're not married or whether married or if you're widowed or, or such. Again, we learn in this origin series that God blessed humanity with a cultural mandate. That is, God said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. The intent is that the man and the woman would come together and create a home which was fruitful. That in marriage, it wasn't just a 10 plus 10 equals 20, but rather, he says, no, it's going to be a 10 times 10 equals 100. As a result, the earth is filled with image bearers, image bearers of the God of the universe. And this occurs within the home. But the fruitfulness is not just about having children. It's about creating a life-giving place. See, two weeks ago, when we looked at biblical femininity, we discovered something remarkable about the woman. In chapter 3 of Genesis, we read, verse 20, we read this, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Now, what's remarkable about that is that he, Adam, names, names her Eve before she has given birth to a single child. Mother of all living can be translated, literally translated, life giver. God created the woman to be the life giver. Women bring life to the men's austere, utilitarian spaces. <laughs> How many of you have been in a bachelor pad? <laughs> The first place I lived in when I was a single man was um, an upstairs room with a, with a bed that was actually cut into the, into the wall, and you could push the bed into that wall so that it would turn into a couch. You would sit just on the edge of it. I mean, that's, that was good stuff. No, no pictures. I mean, what's the point of that? You know, it had a sink in there and a shower and, you know, a, no, it had a bathtub, actually. Terrible. Women bring life to our austerity as men. Women bring poetry to men's straightforward prose. Women bring taste to men's basic provisions. Women, you bring life to our lives as men. It's like a fruitful vine. If you can imagine a vineyard of which we are supposed to, you see this parallel, you know, you parallel rows of grape vines. And what you see are plants that are lush with leaves and hopefully draping grapes. But what you don't see is a structure holding up those lush plants. See, there are posts about every six feet that are joined together by three heavy uh, wires that run horizontal to the ground about one foot apart from each other. It is this structure that is hidden behind the fruitful vine that provides the structure necessary for the wine, the vine to be fruitful. And so it is within the home. The husband provides the basic structure and it is the wife who brings life to that structure. If you're a single woman, Christ is your husband and is bringing structure to your life as you are obedient to him. And then you bring life to that structure. If you are a widow, and we know that within the mind of God, within the heart of God, he has a particular love for widows and orphans 
and aliens, immigrants, widows. God, the Father, is your husband. And you bring life in your home. Women who fear the Lord bring life into their homes so that whoever enters into your family, whether you are a single person, somebody coming into your family, or you are married, you, you women bring life to all who enter in. Your Christian home is a place of hopefulness and wholeness. Well, there's a third blessing. And the third blessing is Family. He says there, your children, second part of verse 3, your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Now, olive shoots aren't cultivated, by, uh, cultivated from seed. So, you know, if you're going to be eating a, an olive with a seed in it and you think, hey, I'm going to plant this and get a, get a tree out of this, and no, you're not. It's not going to happen. It's not the way it works. No, rather, new trees come from the shoots that grow around older olive trees. Biologically, the new shoots are identical copies of the source tree. They are the new life that stems from the older, uh, older tree. So when you are a Christian, uh, you as a Christian are living in a culture that is at war with Christ and thus with his followers. When you are living in a culture that is bent on tearing down all that is true and good and beautiful, where do you find your blessedness? Where do you find your sense of okayness? You find it in the new life within your home. See, the Origin series has reminded us that there is an enemy who hates humanity and is bent on destroying lives. There is really a hostility. God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, serpent, and you shall bruise his heel. See, the good news to the woman who was deceived is that through her there would come a savior, savior who would slay the dragon. And so the dignity of every child conceived is that he or she is to be a dragon slayer, all pointing back toward the dragon slayer, Jesus Christ. Or on this side of the cross, all of our children are pointing back to him. So again, Psalm 127, verses 3 through 5, reads this warrior-like this warrior way. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruits of the womb a reward. And like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies and his enemies in the gates. So that within the Christian home, children are to be sharpened with all the good news of Jesus Christ so that they can grow into our world as arrows piercing the darkness. Well, perhaps, perhaps you're a single man or a single woman. Perhaps you are a widow or widower. Well, you come alongside parents of Sacred City. You come alongside parents as kids workers and Sacred City kids. You come along as childcare workers to give those parents a break. You come alongside as a mentor to show them the way that you've already gone. You come along as one who is experienced, who has made the mistakes and the successes and want to train others. You are the adopted grandparent to give richness to our children. When we raise our children in line with how God has ordained or ordered, sorry, the universe revealed in Scripture 4, or sorry, Scripture, verse 4 is our reminder. So look at verse 4 now. So again, as we order our families, raise our children in line with how God has ordered the universe, verse 4 is a reminder. It starts this way. It says, Behold. That's a stop sign. Behold. It feels hopeless. It seems like the Antichrist cultural voices are winning the war. 
He says, behold, uh-oh, stop. Get hope. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears Yahweh. Now, this word bless is a different word used here for the blessed that is in verses 1 and 2. See, the words in verses 1 and 2 mean a happy or contented state. But the word blessed in our verse here, verse 4, signals that the blessings of verses 1 and 2 are sourced in the very God that we fear. The psalmist is acknowledging that God is the one from whom all blessings flow. See, we live in a really good universe. He has has wired goodness into the world that we live. The the goods of chapter one in our origin series, the good of chapter one, good, 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 that still exists. We do live in a good place. And every human being that is conceived is good. Now, what tends to happen is, is that we also know that this thing called total depravity, which means that, no, we're not all that all bad, but we do know that all sin has affected all of the good. And so we tend to think, oh, this is a terrible place. There is no good. Oh, no, God says, it's really good. I made it good. Oh, yeah, it's broken, and there are problems, and there's sin, yes. Think about this. Here's how we know there's goodness. Next time you're at a red light, I want you to notice something. Just notice this. People are stopping. Have you ever thought about that? Why the, what's the big deal about red? I mean, why, why stop at red? It, what, what's the deal about that color? It could have been pink. It could have been purple. No, no, we decided red. And so what, what do we do? We have all these people around us, most who probably don't claim Christ yet, and they're stopping. Huh. How come? Well, because this world is wired with goodness. That they realize, as I realize, probably be smart just to stop here and wait and be patient. Or try to be patient. Goodness. Goodness is wired within our universe, wired within our creation. So that as you step into every day, you know that you are entering into a good world. And what God is saying is this. He says, what you need to do is you need to fear me. In other words, live your life in the grain of the goodness that I have created in it. If you do this, you will be blessed. See, the creator, the stainer, the Lord, the judge, the savior is the source of that blessing. And the source of that blessing and the location of where that blessing is going to flow, it's going to flow in your home. God has ordained the Christian home to be the place of hopefulness and wholeness to your family. But not only to your family, God has ordained the Christian home to be the place of hopefulness and wholeness to our world. And so now we can understand the connection between verses 1 through 4 and verses 5 and 6. See, look at the next phrase. The pilgrims are singing as they are going up to Jerusalem, and they sing this, the Lord bless you from Zion. Now, Mount Zion was the exact location within the city walls of Jerusalem where the temple was built. Thus, it was where God specifically dwelt And so they knew that the blessing comes to the one who fears the Lord from Zion because that is the place where Yahweh dwells. Now the language here is one that is repeated throughout the Psalms and it's called Zion theology. And this is all you need to know about Zion theology is this. It expresses the reality that the source of all blessings to Jerusalem of where Mount Zion is located, or all the blessings to Israel, or all the blessings to all of the earth flows out of Mount Zion. 
because the everlasting, overflowing spring of refreshing spiritual water is God himself. And so just imagine what it's like for those pilgrims, God's chosen people traveling to Jerusalem in that arid conditions of the Middle East. They were physically experiencing the need for water, symbolically of their spiritually parched uh, need. So look at what then the pilgrims sing to one another. Then they sing, may you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Now what prosperity is the psalmist referring to? Well, prosperity means wholeness. Where God dwells, there is wholeness. Where God dwells, it is the source of wholeness. So now look at the next blessing. May you see your children's children. And what he's talking about, what are they talking about? Well, he's talking about a home. It's a legacy. It's a godly legacy. See, God has ordained to set up shop in the Christian home. When I was studying biblical femininity, I was looking at Titus 2, 3 through 5, where Paul speaks directly to women, and in those exhortations, there's this location where all of this is to be happening. The home. And then Paul states why this is so important. He says, that the word of God may not be reviled. And central to the word of God is the gospel. The home is the experiential location of the gospel. That, the epicenter in the universe for the broken to experience good news is the Christian home. I mean, think of that. The epicenter of the universe for broken people to experience the gospel is our homes. Tamara and I, my wife, watched Otto last night, Tom Hanks, main actor. Um, there's a scene in there of a, of course, transgender character who was broken. And they got it right. Otto invited him into his home. And wholeness was beginning to occur. Now, the movie Otto missed a lot of things. There were huge, you know, huge misses. But they got it right there. And by the way, Otto, the American version, is actually off of a Swedish version, and the Swedish version I've actually seen, and it's better. So if you want to bone up on your Swedish, or turn on captions, I don't remember if it was a transgender character, but the same, almost scene for scene, it was the same. But they got it right. It was, it was a warm moment. Because the people, our world in chaos, is, it's in chaos because it is living outside of the grain of the universe. And so we have all these broken people, and they're trying to figure out, what do we do with all these broken people? They got it right. Invite them into your home. Unfortunately, Otto had no hope. But he did have a warm bed. See, what... Paul seems to be saying is that the Christian home becomes an apology for the gospel. In a culture that is at war with all that is true and good and beautiful, when they see the Christian home, they won't have much to say. Christian homes become a city on a hill. When our homes serve as a city on the hill, former enemies of God, those at war with God, are brought into the family of God, and there is, uh, there is shalom. See, the lyric of that last phrase in our psalm, peace be upon Israel. See, remember how shalom, uh, I defined it earlier? It's defined at the very beginning of the message. It is the hopefulness and wholeness of life when one's life is lived with the grain of how the creator has created the world. So when God's chosen people live with the grain of how the creator created the world, particularly within the home, shalom reigns. Wholeness and hopefulness. 
Martin Luther rightly saw the home as being the fountainhead of what good civil government hoped to be. So in his uh, 16th century uh, verbiage, here it goes. Luther explained, for, house, for of houses or families are made cities. Uh, we would just say it this way, cities are made of houses and families. <laughs> um, for of houses or families are made cities, of cities, provinces, of provinces, kingdoms. Household government then, speaking of the home, household government then is with reason called the fountain of policy and political government. In other words, civic government. For if you destroy the one, the home, the other cannot exist. And so as our homes are lived within the grain of the creator of the universe, it speaks to our world and our government, our civic governments, looks in on the home and says, oh, so that's how it's done. So like those pilgrims marching toward Jerusalem, feeling out of place among people at war with God, what can we do? Well, let us build our homes. Let us build our homes in the fear of God. Where is our hope? Our hope is in the God who has ordained the home to be the hopefulness and wholeness of our families and our world. Now, I know that some of you have come from terrible situations, and you've had no model. And so you've entered your home probably in not great ways. Don't be in despair. As you continue to be obedient to God, as you continue to work that out, it will do its work. God will work through your home. You're starting a whole new legacy. And I know that there are some of you who have or came in late in the game, and so you've already raised your children, or your children are far along here, and you have not done it the way God has ordained in terms of running it with the, with the, with the grain of the creator of the universe. And so you're kind of paying those consequences, whatever it is. You have regrets. I'm a, I'm, I'm a pastor of four adult children. I have a lot of regrets. And yet, I know that God is working in their lives through the home that we had as best we possibly could have done. God will do a great work through your home. See, he takes brokenness and does amazing things. I want to tell you a final story here. Jesus, as he was going along, um, he, he, he came to a, a well <laughs> And he was, he, was, he was going through a country that was marginalized. And in that marginalized country, there was a woman who was marginalized, for she was not living up to the expectations of that marginalized country, those marginalized people. So she was out in the heat of the day, and she was sitting by a well, getting some water. And Jesus, as he began to inquire, as he began to gospel her, as he began to ask probing questions... <laughs> It came to be that she was a woman who had already married four men and had been cast off and now was living with a man outside of the covenant of marriage. This was a broken woman. At this point in her life, all she wanted was a drink of water, just a little relief from the sun. But Jesus said to her, oh, no, I have something much better. I have living water. Living water, so you recognize it is John chapter 4. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him or her a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so the woman said to him, I, I know that the Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things and Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. What a moment. What a moment. Makes a great movie. And she believes. And what does she do? She goes back to her hometown. She goes back to the town, I mean, though she was around. And she, she goes there, and then as a result, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Simply she said, I told, he told me all that I ever did. I mean, that's, that was the gospel right there. 
And God used it. So then the Samaritans from the town came up. And this is what we learn. He stayed for several days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So he saved a broken woman and she went home. And in that home, she then began to tell about Jesus. And as a result of that home, a city that was dark to the Savior, a light came. And so they believed as well. See, God has ordained our homes to be a place of hopefulness, a place of wholeness, not only for our families, but for our world. So you can go. You can leave out here, leave out these doors, and you can go home, and you know you have a powerful work to do. God is quietly working in our broken world through your homes. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and said, this is my body broken for you. Then he took a cup and he said, this blood is the blood of a new covenant, a covenant of which enters people into a relationship with you because it is the, my blood for the forgiveness of sins. It's interesting as you think about those pilgrims. When the pilgrims went up to Jerusalem, they went up to Mount Zion because that is where God dwells. Jesus, what he did is, we are told he was taken outside of the city. He was taken outside to take what should have been ours so that the one who is inside, if you will, God, the holy God, his, his wrath was satisfied by the one who was outside the city, the one who gave his body and shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. So that now that as we look towards the cross, we look towards the one who died for us, who gave his life for us, shed his blood for us, we are people who have hope. We are people who are thankful that we are his people and a people who are thankful that we have a God who took care of our sinful sin problem. So as we take this meal, we're reminded again of this new covenant, this covenant renewal celebration for sinners like us who are God's people, saints. Father, thank you. <laughs> oh, that you would call us saints who are sinners. And so as we take this bread into this cup, Father, we pray that it would remind us again of Yahweh, the one who is good and who does not overlook sin, but has dealt with it in his own son. Make our homes, Father, a place where we more and more find wholeness and hopefulness not only for our families, but for our neighbors and for our cities and for our state and for our country and for our world, we pray. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.